let me get the rest of this put together. Uh, hopefully this is working. <laughs> Alrighty, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me pray before we get started. Father God, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that through your word we come to see and to know your son Jesus. Jesus who, who is eternally God right alongside you, Father, and yet has come into human history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came and he, as a, as a man, lived, lived a truly human life, but it, unlike our human lives, it was perfect. He was totally obedient to you, and he died in our place, bearing your wrath, and now you have vindicated him to be your son, to be truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by raising him from the dead. And we celebrate that today. We celebrate that this Resurrection Sunday, Easter morning. We celebrate that Jesus is alive. So, Lord, as we, as we think about your word, as we think about what Jesus has done, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, since we're live, you're going to get all the benefits of being live with background noises and all. <laughs> Hopefully there aren't too many. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? Why year after year, decade after decade, century after century, for two millennia, have Christians been celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? We face, as human beings, absolutely no more menacing foe than death itself. Uh, it looms over every single one of us. It's waiting to swallow each of us. Uh, if you think of Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20, it says that Sheol and Abaddon, which mean the grave and death, they are never satisfied. They're never full. They're, they're never going to get to the point where they say, ah, we've had enough. There's always more graves to be dug. There's always more people waiting to then fill those graves with their dead bodies. Death is coming for me, and death is coming for you. And now, some of us, we try to live in such a way that ignores that, that, that we can try to distract ourselves from this truth. But Ecclesiastes 7 says that the death is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart. They will lay it to heart. We cannot live in wisdom without recognizing and even to some sense, in some sense embracing this truth that we are mortal. And, and this very mortality, this, this fact that our lives will end, it stands as a judgment upon us because we're made in the image of God. We were, we we're made as those who are to be God's representatives on earth. And as such, death was not meant for us. We were not meant to die. And yet here we are as these creatures with temporary earthly lives. So what, what can be done about that? Well, into this bleak reality that, that our lives end, that we are mortal, bursts the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? 
And what could be more glorious than this? The victory of death swallowed up by a greater victory. The pain of final loss removed by some greater truth, superseded by some greater truth. How could this be? Paul's words here are an immense comfort to me. But but to cling to them, I need to know that they are true. And, and not just that they're true in some abstract sense, but I, I want to know why they're true. Why is it true that death is swallowed up in victory? How can this be? Thankfully, these words aren't just randomly thrown out there by themselves in the pages of Scripture. They're actually part of an argument. They're, they're part of an argument that Paul is building as he moves through 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. As we go through his argument, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to just walk through some of what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to see four truths about the resurrection of Jesus that give us hope for today. And the first of these truths is this, that Jesus' resurrection is the central fact in human history. The central fact in human history is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 say this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So where does Paul begin in 1 Corinthians 15? He begins with those things which are of first importance. That's what he says in verse 3, I deliver to you what is of first importance. And in verses 1 and 2, he emphasizes the importance of the gospel that he's about to share. He he, he says, he refers to it this way. It's he has, he's an apostle and he has preached the good news to them. What he's about to tell them is something that was worth proclaiming. It was worth heralding. It was worth shouting from the rooftops, if you will. And they received it with great joy. It's something that when they took on board what he said, when they brought it into their lives, it changed them. It wasn't just something that they took into their minds, but they took it in and it did something inside. It it brought joy to their life. It brought a, a new kind of happiness. It brought a new kind of life that was not there before they knew this truth. They now stand in this good news. So it's not just It's not just something that that makes you feel good, but it's truth. It's something that you can sink your roots down into. You can plant your feet on it. We think of Jesus' uh, story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the contrast between two men building. One builds his life on the sand, and when the storms of life come, his house is washed away. 
in contrast to that is the man who builds his house on the rock. And that man builds his house and the storms of life come and trials and tribulations come and he is able to stand. He's able to hold firm and that's because his house is on a solid footing. And, and so the, the believers here in Corinth, they're able to stand in what Paul has said to them because it is true. And it's also the truth that they not only stand on, it's not just the truth that's changed their hearts, given them joy, but it's the truth that is saving them. It is now saving you if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. In By, by this which you are being saved, verse 2, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you. If we hold fast, it will save us. What is this truth? What is this message? Well, he tells us in verses 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, Jesus did all kinds of important things, cool things, interesting things, right? I mean, we can just think, even just reading through the Gospels, we see that he heals people, he performs all sorts of miracles, he casts out demons, he's got the authority to give life, he calls Lazarus out of the grave, he turns water into wine, he multiplies bread and loaves, he does all sorts of interesting, fascinating, amazing things teaches with great authority, not as the scribes, it says at the end of Matthew 7. And yet, what does Paul single out as of first importance? Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He, he's, he says, when it comes to what is most important, you've got the death of Jesus in our place in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, signifying that he was really dead. This isn't, this isn't a, a make-believe death. This isn't Jesus passing out on the cross. Jesus died for you. He was buried for you. And, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, we, we might think, like, what? What scriptures point forward to this? And it's all through the Old Testament. So if you were tuned into our, our Psalm 22 for Good Friday, we just looked at some of the parallels between what's happening in chapter 22 of the Psalms and what's going on in the New Testament, ways that those things are echoed, that they're fulfilled in Christ. One of the most famous passages, of course, is Isaiah 53, where it's prophesied that for our iniquities the Savior would be crushed, the suffering servant of the Lord in, in Isaiah 53. He would be crushed for our transgressions. He would be pierced. And the wrath of God would be upon him. The chastisement of God would be upon him. All of that falls on Jesus. Jesus bears the weight of my sin and of your sin and of the sin of any who would trust in him. Jesus bears the wrath of God against that. That's what he did on the cross for you and for me. The Lord has laid on him, Isaiah 53 says, the iniquity of us all. And this is good news because it, it means that now we can stand before God as those who have been covered by the blood of the Lamb by the blood of the slain lamb of God. 
And more than that, not only have we been covered by his blood and so we can be forgiven, but because he has been raised, because he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, we can have the same promise of life. We can have the promise of resurrection life. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, it's interesting in verses 5 through 8, Paul actually lingers on, on another fact subsequent to Jesus being raised from the dead. And that's his appearances. Verse 5, And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why, why is Paul laboring this fact that, that Jesus not only rose from the dead, he then showed up, he proved it by, by showing himself to hundreds and hundreds of people. And, and he says to the people in Corinth, most of whom are still alive. It's as if he's saying, do you not believe me? Do you not just want to take my word for it? You don't have to take my word for it. Go ask the people who saw him. That None of what Paul is going to say in, in the rest of what happens in this chapter, none of it matters if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true. That there is no hope if Jesus is not actually alive. If Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, then, then there is no hope for me, there's no hope for you, there's no hope for life after death. If, if Jesus isn't raised, then nobody's raised, and we just all die, and that's it. Or worse, we die and we all face judgment and don't have any standing because Jesus didn't rise. So, so Paul, he has to, to ground Christian faith is faith in a real sense. You know, we're trusting in something that we don't see. But it's not faith in the sense of, I've got magical faith in some kind of sky god that I don't have any evidence for. He is appealing to a reasonable faith based on, on witnesses, on facts. We're, we're trusting God for the present and for the future, things that we cannot yet see. And yet, we're basing that trust on the fact that he has come through in the past and he's come through in the most important way. He sent his son to die for us and he raised his son again, showing that when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, God agreed. Sin was paid for, the, the debt's been paid, and now Jesus has been raised and, and all who trust in him can have that same life. Before we move on, verse two, I wanna back up a little bit. Paul brings something up, and he says, by these things, what we just talked about, that Jesus died, he was buried, that he rose again, if you trust in that, you are saved, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul, Paul has suggested that, that maybe if they're quick to let go of that truth, of Jesus rising from the dead, it's because they've believed in vain, or that they believed on scanty evidence. And he, he's belaboring the point of the historical evidence and, and the fact that it's overwhelming. Literally, if, if, it, if there's almost 500 people that are still alive who've seen Jesus, these guys could go track them down and find them. And in doing so, they're not making a blind leap of faith. God does not ask us to make blind leaps of faith. He asks us to trust him because he has proved himself faithful. The second truth we see is that Jesus' resurrection recenters our hope. Jesus' resurrection recenters our hope. 
What would happen if Jesus weren't alive? What, it, what would happen if this was all a lie, if this resurrection celebration of Easter Sunday, like it was all fake? Well, that's what some of the Corinthians were being told. Someone had come to them saying that, well, resurrections don't happen, and therefore Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And that's a a thought pattern that's common today. You'll hear people say, yeah, that'd be great if Jesus was alive, but people don't rise from the dead. So he couldn't be alive. And if they're right, if that thought pattern is right, then preaching hope and having faith are in vain. That's what Paul says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is, is in vain and your faith is in vain. You know, we've got all these people in our world today saying, have faith, have faith, have trust. In, in what? If Jesus isn't alive, none of it matters. It's not true. So why would you have faith? If, if Jesus isn't alive, then those who preach Christ, if guys like me, we're lying. We're misrepresenting God, and, and we should be judged for that. Well, if Jesus isn't alive, we're still in our sins, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You have no hope if Jesus is not alive. You're still dead in your sins. And verse 18, maybe the most devastating of all of these things, if Christ has not been raised, then all of those believing loved ones that you've known, those who have passed on and you've had this hope that, you know what, they trusted in Jesus, they're with him. Well, if Jesus isn't alive, neither are they. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. All of our hope as believers, hope that, that we're following God right now, hope that we're forgiven right now, hope that there is something beyond this life that is better with God. It's all gone if Jesus isn't alive. Why are all of these things true because a Jesus who was left in the grave by God is a Jesus whose sacrifice for sins wasn't accepted by the Father. Romans 1.4 tells us that God declared Jesus to be his son not only through words, we hear that in the Gospels, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son, but he also proclaimed it through the resurrection itself. If Jesus' body lies buried in Palestine today, he's not the Son of God, he is not the Savior, and we have no hope. Verse 19 would tell us that we are of all people most to be pitied. You know, some people will say, well, you can believe what you want as long as it makes you feel good. Like, even if you're wrong, whatever, at least it made you feel better in this life. That's not how Paul thinks. Verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. All true Christian hope, even hope in this life, is centered on the fact that our hope for the next life is based in reality. If it's not based in reality, then why are you watching this on YouTube right now? There's other stuff on TV. Not any sports right now because of coronavirus, but there'd be something on TV that would be better to watch than this. But we we believe that Jesus is alive. Verse 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. Through, through his resurrection life, all who trust in Christ are given resurrection life as well. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. 
What, what does this do? Because the resurrection of Jesus is true, it recenters our hope. Verse 19, it said that if, if we have hope in this life only, hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if he has been raised, if he is alive, then there is hope beyond the grave. There is hope for eternity with God, for the kingdom of God in which death is conquered, Christ is reigning, and God is seen to be all in all. The hope that Christ gives us in this life is important, and we'll touch on it a little bit in, in later on in the sermon, but, but it's only possible because this life is not all that there is. Speaking of Abraham, in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, the writer says, He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose founder and builder is God. Which takes us to our third truth. Jesus' resurrection guarantees us new bodies. And I'm just going to read, this is a little bit longer section, uh, but we're just going to touch on a few brief points, but we need need to have the whole context in our head to understand what we're going to say. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Like I said, that's a long section, but I just want to zero in on three facts that we learn about these bodies that that Paul is promising we'll get. And the first is that they're real bodies. And it could be easy for us to read something like verse 44, which says, If it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And and we might think that, that maybe they're different in the sense that these aren't real bodies. I mean, what after all is a spiritual body? But the point of Paul's analogy with the grain and the wheat is that God has given us in creation a picture of the type of resurrection that we'll have. Uh, Those who trust in Christ will one day be raised, and those bodies will be real bodies. But they'll be fundamentally different. Uh, Think about the contrast between a caterpillar and a butterfly. You've got this creepy, crawly, fuzzy thing that wraps itself up like a burrito, and a couple of days later, it emerges as one of the most beautiful creatures that you've ever seen. So these weak bodies, these breaking down bodies, 
will one day be sown in the dust, will be laid to rest, only to be raised in a state that is more real. When, he, when Paul's talking about spiritual reality, he's not talking about things that are less real than this world. He's talking about things that are more real. So our, our weak present bodies, which are real, will be laid in the dust, and one day we will receive realer, more weighty, more substantial, more genuine bodies than even these that we have now. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthian church that the things that are seen, the things that we can see with our natural eyes are transient, they're passing, they're going away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, unseen doesn't mean ghost-like or unreal or airy. It means that in our current state of earthly, sinful mortality, we don't have the capacity to see things of this weight. But one day we will. The second thing we see about these bodies is that it's important that we start off with the dusty bodies. We're children of Adam, and thus we have Adam's earthly, dusty, and for now, sinful, broken, and decaying bodies. Jesus, though he was without sin, took on a body like that, a real, genuine, earthly body. The word became flesh, John 1, 14, and dwelt among us. In the resurrection of this man who was like us in our weakness, Jesus became like us in our weakness, we are now promised a life like his because of his work for us in this kind of body. So while we groan in our earthly bodies, and some of us that's every morning, we wake up and we groan in our earthly bodies. Some people it's all day every day groaning because of these earthly bodies. We can wait longing for the new ones that are promised by God, and we can also take hope in the nobility of these earthen vessels, of these clay pots. For Christ himself took on human flesh, and he bore our sorrows in a frail human body. First frailty and then glory. The third thing, though, is that we are promised glory, too. Note verse 49. It says, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. God will give us new bodies, and he will do so for this purpose, that we might be like his son. First um, John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In this life, God is progressively growing believers to be more and more like him. To their con- he's conforming them. He's molding them. He's shaping them to be like him, to, to grow their character, their spirit, if you will, to be more in line with Jesus. And that's a key component of what it means to be a Christian. Theologians call it progressive sanctification. It's an important part of following Jesus. 
and and yet one day that slow progression gets replaced because we will be fundamentally transformed into his image we'll be fundamentally different the same the same people but but when we're given those new bodies we'll be able to see things that we cannot now see and we will see him as he is and first john 3 told us that as we see him as he is we shall become like him because of that fourth truth we see in this in this first corinthians 15 is that jesus resurrection conquers death jesus resurrection conquers death verse 50 reminds us of a terrifying truth i tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable our, our sinful selves uh, our flesh and blood selves are unfit to stand before a righteous and holy god we cannot come into the kingdom of god as as ourselves on our own on our own standing on our own if christ were to return right now we would suffer the wrath of his fury against sin because we're sinners the streets would be flowing with our blood when revelation talks about the the knee-deep blood it would be our blood because we are the ones who have sinned against god and yet Christians don't look forward to Christ's return with fear. We don't think of the kingdom of God as something to be afraid of. We look forward with joyful and expectant hope. And, and what's the difference? What has changed? Well, it, it's because we know that his death, Jesus' death, has become our death. And thus his life is now our life. Death has been swallowed up by our risen Savior. Where is its sting? It's gone. Where is its victory? It's vanquished. Let's read the rest of this section here. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly, hung on the cross, bearing the weight of our law-breaking. And when he cries, it is finished, he announces that the penalty for sin has been paid in full. For those who trust in Christ, the law is fulfilled, the power of sin is broken, and, and we who are trusting in him can look death square in the eye and say, where is your victory? One, one thing to notice is that in, in each case of being someone raised in Scripture, as you read through the Bible and, and you see people being raised from the dead, because Jesus isn't the only one to rise from the dead in, in the Scriptures, uh, but you, you think of 
times when Jesus raised people from the dead, Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the widow of Nain's son. Uh, in the Old Testament, you see Elijah and Elisha raising the dead. In each of those cases, there's a prophet or an apostle. Someone, yeah, even in the, the Acts, sometimes people are raised from the dead through the apostles. But, but there's someone there ministering the power of God. There, there's someone who is who is the the voice of God, as it were, calling that person back. And yet, when Jesus rises, he rises on his own authority. Jesus says in John 10, 18, I have authority to lay it down, his life, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus has authority over life. And, he, and with that same authority, he offers life to all who believe in him. In conclusion, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This, this truth is worth celebrating, isn't it? He says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and he has given life to all who trust in him. And that means that we can have steadfast and immovable hope in this world. We can take Comfort in every circumstance, knowing that God is at work. We can labor with all our might, serving him diligently. And we know that these things are not folly. They're not foolishness. They make perfect sense because Jesus is alive. He is working. And one day he will call his children to a perfect home. He will call them to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we see him will all become like nothing beside him. We can't earn a hope and a joy like this, but we can gladly receive it from his risen, nail-scarred hands. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came and that you died for us and that you rose again victorious over the grave, over death, over sin, over Satan. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you apply that truth, that gift to our lives and seal us for the day of redemption. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts that are receptive to what you've done and that you would, through your Spirit, empower us and encourage us to spread this good news to those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we close, I want to read a passage from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Beginning in verse 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe 
and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This risen king is our king. Happy Easter.